Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back to the Bins. What episode is this? Uh, 37, I think. Of Back to the Bins? I think so. That's Tales of the JSA. Oh, Tales of the JSA. I have one of them fucking shows. Um, no, it's 60-something. 60 65, 66. I don't know. Don't ask me shit. <laughs> My name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Scott Gardner. How's it going? And- <laughs> and this week we uh, we have another special episode uh, for you. Not a short bus special. <laughs> not a we wear hockey equipment but don't play for the team special. But one that is actually tied into our other podcast because we never tie these two shows together. Uh, but another that's tied into Tales of the JSA. We are covering all five published issues. And giving a peek at the unpublished issue six that was in Cancelled Comics Cavalcade after the DC explosion of the Jerry Conway created Steel the Indestructible Man. Mm-hmm. Because this character is introduced in the issue of All Star Squadron that we'll be reading, uh, or covering, I guess. We won't be reading it. Because people would probably find that boring if we just sat there and, well, maybe, maybe if we dramatically read the issue. Now you like, know I can't read. <laughs> Why did you have to say that? Yeah, well, I figured your kids were helping you with the words, and you were just looking at the pretty pictures. I like so. pictures. They're pretty. <laughs> so, Steel the Indestructible Man was, to me. Jerry Conway's attempt to bring a 60s Marvel-style hero into the DC comics of the 70s. And uh, as I reread these issues over the last couple of days, uh, my opinion, that opinion, I mean, holds pretty firm. Mm -hmm. That uh, this, this feels like a Marvel book, but more of the fun of the Marvel 60s with the quote-unquote seriousness of the uh, 70s. And it has as its thematic core uh, a concept I really, really got behind in terms of why Steele did what he did. But uh, had you ever read this before we were covering these? No, no, I didn't. As a matter of fact... This is one of those characters I always liked, but in kind of like a vague way, because he was one of those guys that I I knew just the barest of things about. And I think a lot of what I liked about this guy was that I was confusing him with later incarnations. 
confusing him with the JLA steal. Yeah, pretty much. Which I mean, it turns out he's related, or that guy's related to him, which is something I want to touch on at some point in this um, in this episode. But yeah, I think that was a lot of it. Is that I liked that character, and I knew that they were connected, and I couldn't I, I couldn't exactly remember why. But as far as the, the this series proper, no, I'd never read this before. As a matter of fact, the only issue I actually own. Um, you know, the paper issue of is number one. Um, all the other ones I had to read off of, uh, off CBRs. Yeah, I bought these from Titans back in the late 90s. They were about a dollar a piece. And I'm like, ah, oh, you know, this looks like an interesting series. And uh, eventually I was kind of glad that I bought it after I started reading All Star Squadron. But it would be years before I actually sat down and read it. I read this like kind of around like 2004 or somewhere around there. I remember digging it out to read and really enjoying it and really liking uh, the Don Heck art. Though, in our Tales episode, I'll reveal why I remember the Don Heck art so fondly. <laughs> because in rereading these issues, it's not that it's horrible. Uh, in spots, it's pretty weak. But, you know, for Don Heck in the 70s, it was pretty good. Uh, but yeah, there, there's something about the Don Heck art we see in the All-Star Squadron issue that makes it a little different from what, uh, from what we saw in, uh, Canceled Comics Cavalcade, so, uh. Well, see, I'll be honest with you is that, you know, last episode of, of Back to the Bins, we did our overrated talents and comics, and Don Heck was actually on my alternate list. You know, if, if somebody had taken one of my other picks, then, then I had a short list of alternates. And he was on there, but I didn't bring it up because somewhere during the course of the episode, I happen to remember that when we did our underappreciated artists, uh, or talents rather, he had made your list as an underappreciated talent. So I didn't want to be a big dick and be like, you know, well, you know, I don't like this. So I didn't say anything, but. You know, in fairness, I think my problem with Don Heck, quite honestly, is that granted he's not one of my favorites, and granted I don't think he's one of the you know the the better artists, but I think a lot of my problem is is it seems like every damn time I see this guy's art, he's got one of the same two inkers. It's either Frank Giacoya or Vinny fucking Coletta, and it's like you know, so you've got a guy that I think has a lot of potential. But then he's he's saddled with inkers that just do nothing for him, because as we'll see in the issue of All Star, you know when he was inked by by Jerry uh, Ordway, damn it looks good. I yes. mean there's some there's some art in there I really really liked, and I think Jerry Ordway did a fantastic job of doing what an inker is supposed to do. He he took the the source stuff. And he just makes it look good. He polishes it up, and that's all an inker should do. And he doesn't—I don't think he overpowers um, Don Heck at all. I think he he brings something to the art and and polishes it up. Which, you know, like I say, that that's an artist's job. It's it's not their job to, you know, put their style on it necessarily. And that's really that's that's Vinnie Coletta's whole thing. That's why so many people don't like his stuff is that you can always tell a Vinnie Coletta ink job, you know, because he just completely, you know, puts his style over top of whoever it is he's working on. And and I've noticed that more and more over the years as we've been looking back at this era and I've been digging out more old comics and looking at it. I mean, there was that one 
story and adventure comics where Vinnie Coletta inked Mike Nasser. And he made Mike Nasser look look bad. <laughs> yeah, how the fuck do you make Mike Nasser's art look like well, it didn't look like shit, but it looked bad. And, you know, I happened to talk to Mike or not talk, but you know, message back and forth with Mike Nasser himself. Now he goes now goes by Netzer. And he was very diplomatic about it, but he pretty much said the same thing. You know, how do you make my art like that? You know, he wasn't crazy about it either, so doesn't surprise me. Yeah. You know, you get a lot of these. I mean, well, well, let's uh, another good example before we get into steel of an inker making a penciler look good. I think it's Carl Kiesel on that Hawk and Dove miniseries. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I honestly think I honestly don't think that Rob Liefeld's art would have looked as good if uh, Kiesel or Kessel. We have a ongoing debate about the pronunciation of that name. Being such a fantastic inker. Being just as good of an inker, I think, as Terry Austin, as a matter of fact, especially when it came to inking John Byrne, which uh, I, I, I really dug his issues of Superman where he inked John Byrne. Yeah, he's my favorite Byrne inker by a hell of a long shot, even above uh, Terry Austin, who I absolutely adore. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to, off the top of my head, name my favorite inker, but at one time it was him, um, mm-hmm. Carl Castle, just because I love his particular style so much because he's he's just so detailed and he's another one that uh i think he he takes the artist's style that he's working with and he adds something to it without overpowering i can tell it's him but it's not to the point where you look at it and go hmm who's the penciler on this i can tell that carl kessel inked it but i don't know who the penciler is that's the problem with vinnie coletta is i look at a vinnie coletta job and i go oh it's vinnie coletta Gee, I don't know who this this artist is. You know, it could be anybody from, you know, Don Heck to, you know, whoever. And I can't tell because he's completely, you know, just destroyed it with his own style. You know, put his own mark on it. I don't like that. That really that really bugs me. And you know, I looked for uh, Carl Kessel. I see. I call it Kessel because I I met the guy when I was a kid, and I was sure that that's how he and his wife pronounced. The name, you know what? Come to think of it, I'm not sure they were married at the time that I met them. They're, they've since divorced, is my understanding. But uh, I find her yes. on Facebook, but not him. And I've been trying to find him because I would like to to put that I, to rest once and for all. How you pronounce the name? I actually have a friend who is friends with him, and I, I've been trying to get an interview uh, for quite some time. It just hasn't. Uh, I, I don't think the the comic book gods have, have, have deemed it for our paths to cross yet, but I, I am looking forward to that. Plus I really like his pencils. Yes. Uh, you know, he, he, he very rarely penciled anything, but he did a newsboy Legion story in secret origins, number 49 that I rather like. And he also wrote that one. And he also drew the newsboy Legion and the guardian who's who binder edition artwork was his. And I really, really liked it. And I would have liked to have seen him actually draw Superman, but such was never to be. So you put me um, on the spot, because when you started to say that, I was I was thinking to myself, it's like, God, I know he's drawn some stuff where he was actually the artist, but off the top of my head, I'm completely <laughs> stuck. I can't remember any of what it was, but I remember seeing things that where he was... I don't know if he inked too, but I know he was the penciler, and I loved it. I really loved it because yeah. for the first time, I, I could really see what his style was. It's not like Terry Austin, 
who is a great inker, but when he pencils, he looks a lot like John Byrne. Exactly. Yeah, that's. So, I, I was always curious with him because, yeah, it's funny. That's, that's pretty much what I was going to say is, you know, I love when you can – you see an inker that you're really familiar with, especially when you're familiar with them from a team like Byrne Austin. But then you see the inker separate as an artist, and I like to get a look at their art to see – you know, exactly what their style is. And you're absolutely right. With Terry Austin, when I saw his style, I thought, well, it's that's why he compliments Burns so well, because he basically draws, draws Burns' style. Whereas Kessel really surprised me, because I think he uh, he really is my favorite Burn inker. But then I looked at his own art when he pencils, and I really didn't see Burn in it. I saw... No. And I, you know, I, off the top of my head, I can't even really say what I think his style. It was a more like. naturalized Jack Kirby style. Hmm. Like if Jack Kirby was a little more rounded, because I know he was okay, very yeah, much I, influenced right. by him. Yeah, I'll buy but, that. Uh, but it's just like not only, but it also looks like you know he took the design sense of Jack Kirby, but then took the more also had more naturalistic influences, like maybe. Uh, Neil Adams or Rich Buckler or somebody like that, where where you know it's like okay we have the we have the grandness of Kirby, but we're going to keep the figures, you know, somewhat natural looking, especially like his Guardian, yeah, uh, which is just awesome. <laughs> Did he draw the Guardian feature in? Oh, what the hell was the name of that book? Legacy Showcase. of Superman. Uh, no, I think, I forget who drew that. It was like Walt Simonson or somebody. Somewhere in that period when Superman was dead, I think he drew something where he was the artist. And I'll be damned if I can remember what it was now. It, it wasn't that Supergirl Luthor thing, was it? It might have been. Jeffrey and I will be getting to that. Yeah. Uh, in a little under a year. Whatever so, uh, it is I'm thinking of was was super it was in the Superman family so yeah you you guys will you guys will chance across that somewhere down the road cuz I have it all but you just put God me in mind while knows. you were talking of about about <laughs> 10 artists that I suddenly was thinking I wonder if these two ever matched you know meaning uh Carl Kessel and and uh, these other artists if they ever mashed up in anything say like uh like Rich Buckler or Norm Brayfogle, and I thought of a couple others because I could really see him bringing something to the table with those particular artists because yeah. he already draws in that, like you say, Neil Adams style, and those guys definitely draw in like a Neil Adams type of style. I would love that. I mean, <laughs> Before Norm Brayfogle became kind of a caricature of his own work uh, in his later Batman stuff where his, he just drew Batman in stock poses of cape swirling and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas at one point he had the most dynamic fight scenes in the Batman books mm-hmm. in Detective. There was this one issue I remember distinctly that had Batman fighting this gang of thugs and he was fighting on top of a table. And it's just like one panel he's kicking in this direction, one panel he's crouched and kicking in that direction. And he's like using the table as kind of a springboard too. And it was just like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but, um,. We're we're here to talk about Steel the Indestructible. <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> ah, this is the nature of Back to the Bins. It's just comic talk. We're good. There. We're all good. We're still on point, sorta maybe half-assed. There's your tangent. Um, <laughs> Steel the Indestructible Man first saw the light of day 
in late 1977, and it was created, as I said, by Jerry Conway. We uh, In the first issue, we get the origin of Steel, From Hell is Forged a Hero, which is a very dramatic name. Uh, the splash page on this is a little goofy, especially Baron Death, who looks like, I'm just going to say it, he looks retarded. He looks like a Ditko villain, I think. Yeah, he, he really does. There, there, there's, there's a little bit of Ditko there, but there's a lot of the Jack Kirby coming right at you uh, as Steel punches through a bunch of green kryptonite. I don't kryptonite. know why. Yeah, I had the same note. <laughs> I don't know why he's punching through kryptonite. But the interesting thing about this title is that uh, from interviewing Jerry Conway, I found out that this was actually supposed to be an Earth-1 hero mm-hmm. because there weren't any, you know, Outside of and, and we were, I guess, proven wrong on this. There really were no World War II era heroes on Earth One. On Earth, on Earth One, uh, we I always assumed that uh, the Blackhawks and uh, you know the Easy Company and uh, who is that character? Sergeant Rock were all Earth One characters, but we were. <laughs> there's a bit of a <laughs> there's a bit of an argument about that, but. He wanted to create a a hero that could be around World War II. And as we get into the first issue, we find Hank Haywood. Do you want to make the joke or do I? <laughs> Go ahead. God, I want like Haywood to be his middle name and Jablomi to be his last name. <laughs> Japiss off. Yeah. <laughs> But we see that Hank Haywood is a biology student who is kind of the apprentice, for lack of a better term, to Dr. Giles or Giles, however you want to. uh, Jay Giles? (laughs) Well, my angel is a centerfold. Um, (laughs) And love does stink. Uh, But they, uh, it's 1939, they go to Germany to uh, show off Giles' Invention, which for lack of a better term is to artificial limbs and artificial skin, making people better, stronger, and faster. And he's kind of laughed out of town uh, outside of this one guy, this barren dude, who believes that uh, Giles can do what he claims. And on the way out of town, they see a couple Nazis slapping around a old Jewish man. And Hank Haywood's not having any of this shit. And he goes and he just beats the piss out of both of them. Showing that, you know, really and truly, he was kind of a beefy guy to begin with. Because he just takes these dudes down, like, quick. And uh, you don't really think of that with the the biology student type. Uh, But he has to get out of town because the Nazis are going to kill him. And the old man provides a distraction for them to escape. We get get home and we meet uh, Dr. Giles' daughter, Gloria who is Hank's fiance and a real world-class bitch too. <laughs> not, not as bad as the other romantic interests. They kind of t- dangle in front of us. Oh right? yeah. Uh, who's not only a bitch, but a manipulative lying bitch. Uh, but basically after this encounter, Hank has had enough and he is going to go join the Marines because he has to do something about this because Hank believes that we're going to get into world war two. And this is the emotional underpinning of this series, is Conway plays with the fact that there was 
a good segment of society before Pearl Harbor that just didn't want to get involved with what was going on in Europe. What's in Europe is Europe's problem. And Hank represents that American that's like, no, you know, at some point we're going to get in this and we better be ready. And this is the big argument between him and Gloria because she just wants him to be a biology student and stay out of it. And he joins the Marines. So, so he was a badass before and now he's even more of a badass because Marines are tough sons of bitches. My grandfather was a Marine. Uh, he fought in the Pacific. So, uh, he saw some shit. (laughs) I like the, uh, I like the boot camp page. Yes. Where it shows the sergeant screaming in his face. And he says, for, and for the next six weeks, my life was hell. And I was thinking, yep, that's pretty much boot camp, all right. <laughs> we are introduced early in the uh, issue to Baron Death. <sighs> probably the weakest point of a pretty good origin story overall. Mm-hmm. Because, because uh, th- one day after going back to... Uh, the base, he sees these two saboteurs trying to blow up something and he starts beating their asses and he accidentally punches one into the plunger that was going to set off the dynamite and everyone is blown to hell and he's hanging on by a, a, a mere thread. And basically, Giles uses his bio-retardant formula to recreate him. And do you want to make this joke or do you want me to? <laughs> Go ahead. They make it... Are you talking about the retardant thing or are you talking something else? I'm going to just snicker every time you say it. That's okay. Um, I think at this point it's fair to say that there's a lot of cyborg. Yes. Uh, which would eventually become the $6 million man on television in this. Not in a bad way, though. I don't think so. You know, a lot of people kind of accuse this of being kind of a ripoff of that. But, and there's a lot to be said for that because he essentially does become a cyborg through what Dr. Giles does to him. But I think the setting is the real difference and kind of the difference, differences personality wise between Haywood and Steve Austin. Now, you watched the show more than I did, so you can tell me if I'm talking out of my ass or not. No, I don't think you are, but uh, see, here's the thing is I, I'm not sure the format you want to do with this. Do you, do you want to go through and do like a like a brief synopsis of each issue and then bring our notes, or do we want to kind of hit the highlights of our notes as we work our way through the issues? Yeah, uh, because once we get out of the origin issue, we're not going to have much of a synopsis. Okay. So it's just it, – it, it's important to kind of cover the origin Right. And then say who he fought. You know? Yeah, yeah. go ahead and do that because uh, I, I have my theory as to who Steele is actually modeled after. And, okay. and I see the parallels with the $6 million man, but I honestly don't think that's what Conway is going for. I think he's actually going for a completely other character here. Or, or at least that there was another character that inspired him. So when we get to the notes section, I'll, I'll, I'll go into that. Well, in true uh, 70s TV superhero fashion, Haywood discovers that he's stronger, faster, better. He fashions an indestructible costume. He calls himself Steel, the indestructible man, and basically goes about fighting the enemy that America is not ready to fight yet. 
And in the first uh, issue, we see him fighting more saboteurs. Because as, we, as we've said before, there are more saboteurs in comic books uh, set in this era, the story set in this era, than I think there were ever any saboteurs in the actual country <laughs> during World War II and before. Because they are the convenient, they are the mohawked street thug of the 1980s Marvel comic. You know, they're everywhere, and they're just easy. They're just easy fodder for the hero to beat up on. And that's essentially the rest of the issue: is him fighting the saboteurs, him, you know, becoming Steel, knocking some more heads, and there's the promise that he's going to. Uh, fight Baron Death, but thankfully we never see Baron Death again. And I was kind of really disappointed that we set up this villain that we never ever see the hero fight in the issue. Could that be because um, he sucked out loud? (laughs) (laughs) That's possible. (laughs) But still, that's kind of weird, because usually when they introduce the villain in the beginning of the story, that's who the hero is going to fight at at the end of the story. But that doesn't happen. We just get him beating more saboteur ass. Yeah. Either at the end of this book or I honestly I expected him to show up very next issue and that would be the big, you know, cuz this issue really concentrated on setting up Steel's yeah. origin. You know, it it got him, you know, it got him the the uh metal bones and the servo mo- or they call them micro motors, micro motors the the metal mesh outfit, the costume, everything. It really set him all up. So I figured, okay, next issue, big confrontation and resolution with, with uh, Baron Death. And yeah, like you say, it never does happen. But I wasn't disappointed either because, you know, I can forgive a villain a lame-ass name or a lame-ass costume, but this guy had both. He really had yeah. nothing at all going for him. He looks stupid and he's got a stupid name, and he just wasn't, you know, he wasn't anything but, uh, you know, your typical stereotype, you know, Heil Hitler, you know, I'm an agent of the Fuhrer himself over here to start some shit, and that's pretty <laughs> much it. But, you know, he doesn't seem to have any superpowers or, or any, he's, he's really just, he's the head Nazi with a goofy costume, and so I wasn't really disappointed that he never comes up again. I do find it absolutely hysterical, though. On page six, second panel, he gets to the beach by riding a uh, torpedo out of the Nazi yeah. sub tube. Now, I'm no expert on submarines, but I'm pretty sure that those tubes are made to like the size of the torpedo itself. So, <laughs> how the hell you ride one of these things out of the tube as it launches? I don't know how that works exactly, but. I still, it's a, it's an interesting visual, if nothing else. But my, my notes here are pretty basic on the story itself. I think Jerry Conway is great at establishing a hero's origin. He always has a pretty well thought out uh, reason for the hero to get his powers and then to do what he does. Uh, and, and it's kind of the shame of it is is that Steel didn't catch on better enough to have more issues after issue five. And like you said, I'm not disappointed that he doesn't fight Baron death mainly because this is all he really needed to do this first issue. Mm -hmm. You know, he fought some saboteurs. He got blown up real good. He becomes steel, the indestructible man. So then he goes out and he beats more saboteur ass. 
And again, I love the concept that this guy is totally committed to fighting for truth and justice in the American way. Mm-hmm. Because he is, you know, he he he's not spoiling for a fight, but he knows one's coming. And he wants to be ready for it. And this is the big argument that a lot of other characters have for him, going so far as in cases to call him like a war hawk. Like, he wants this. Right. And I find myself responding to that because, yeah, you know, he's the one that, that, that's got the, the realistic outlook on what's coming down the pike. You know, yeah, Germany is, is causing trouble in Europe, but eventually it's going to come to our shores. And I just really liked the first issue. The Don Heck art, not as good as I remember, but I really like the costume design, uh, except maybe for the fin on the head, which I think is the only weak portion of this costume for me. I like I think, that best. That's my favorite part of it. I, I've always had a thing for for heroes usually like futuristic heroes and this guy's not really like a futuristic hero but i still like that i like the fit on the head i don't know why (laughs) so so what do you what do you think of mr haywood's origin story (sighs) i'm gonna lay it out straight with you i liked this first issue a lot i really did i i like this guy i like his psychological makeup i like the fact that I think some of the best heroes are heroes that you can see the glimmer of hero in them long before they they have their, you know, before they get their superpowers or they're hit by the gamma bomb or whatever the hell the deal is that, that puts them in the superhero thing. And on page three, you know, you, you see that with this guy where he beats the hell out of these Nazis long before he becomes steel. I like that. It shows that he's already got a heroic makeup to him, that he's already uh-huh. doing the right thing. I, I like that. So I liked that portion of him. I liked his origin story. I thought it was a good origin story that, you know, he joined the Marines to, you know, out of a sense of duty to his country and things like that. Um, I like the fact of, you know, they'd already set up the thing with the bio-retardant and, and basically they could use that to rapidly heal a man but also it was something to do with the process of um it being able to implant something into the human body and not have the human body reject it and that ends uh-huh. up being the tool for how they can give this guy you know a metal skeleton basically you know they give him a metal skeleton they give him servo motors an artificial lung and something to do with his heart and all these things so you know it's kind of the bionic man syndrome but i like that that there was actually a scientific explanation for how they could do all this to this guy and have him live. You know, I mean, he's not Wolverine, you know? Yeah. He doesn't have a healing factor. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I liked that. So they, they were able to work around that couple nitpicks I had though. And again, I don't know. I, I suspect that this really comes down to the artists is on page eight, page eight does nothing to, add drama to this portion. This should be the most dramatic portion of the entire story. You know, Hank finds these guys, these saboteurs, and they're about to blow up, what is it? I think it's the fuel depot. Or no, the ammunition dump. They're going to blow up the ammunition dump of his base. So he wades in and beats the piss out of them. 
He knocks one of them back. The guy hits the plunger, sets off the explosion, and all three guys get blowed up real good. But the problem is, is that those two bottom panels where the GIs come in, or excuse me, the uh, MPs come in, and they find Haywood and these other guys blown up, they don't look blown up. I mean, their, their clothes are torn up a little bit, and it looks like, you know, it looks like they got singed or something. But the guys are standing over him and saying all these dire things like, holy shit, this guy's a fucking mess, dude. You know, what are we going to do? You know, the, the one guy says, uh, geez, Mort, one of these Joes is still alive. You call that alive? He may be breathing now, Fred, uh, but the way he's been hit, uh, if he ain't dead by morning, he's sure going to wish he was. And I'm looking at the guy and I'm going, dude, his shirt is torn. You know, that's it. He's not like all bloody or scarred or, or <laughs> mangled or, you know, he doesn't have any limbs missing. You know, his guts aren't hanging out. I mean, granted, this is a kid's comic from 1977 or 78, but still, you know, show him her or show show him in shadow. You know, don't don't show him, but show him in shadow as a, a human form with, with like smoke rising off of him so that your mind fills in the blanks of how horribly deformed and messed up this guy is now. But by showing him with little more than like his shirt is ripped and there's some, some pink smoke rising off the body, it doesn't look like he's hurt very bad to me, you know? <laughs> so it might sound like a, like a nitpick, but it really did bother me. I mean, they, they didn't, I, I think it kind of, pulls something away from the punch of this guy was supposed to be mortally wounded by what happened. He was supposed to be damn lucky to have survived that portion, and now he had a real uphill battle, you know, to survive. Because then on the very next page, you know, after he's been taken to the hospital and all, they've got him wrapped up like a freaking mummy. <laughs> and so you, you go from one page to the other, and you look, at, you look back at the page where he was injured, and you go, well, what the hell, they got his face wrapped? And nothing's wrong with his face. His eyebrows aren't even singed off, so I think it was really a fault of the uh, of the artists in that part. I, th- I think they just didn't do enough to really um, portray that this guy had been really hurt, you know, really messed yeah. up. Yeah, um, I can agree with that. But my biggest note on this the the thing I'm, I strongly suspect that this may be drawn from is something while I was reading this story triggered a memory of something I've always wanted to track down and read and never have. There was this book back in the 60s, I want to say like 68 or thereabouts, by this guy, uh, Ted White. And it was this book called Captain America, The Great Gold Steel. And it presented a somewhat different version of Captain America who, in addition to the chemicals and the, what were they called, Vita rays or whatever the hell, that he was subjected to by uh, Dr. Erskine, they also went in and they gave him basically the same thing that happens to Haywood in this story. They gave him metal bones and all this stuff. And so he, you know, long before Wolverine or any of that, this Captain America had... You know, like basically like an adamantium skeleton, you know, sort of a a precursor to that. Interesting. And so he was Captain America plus basically because of the the deal with the 
they call what they stainless steel slotted tubes inserted into the marrow and all this other stuff. There's Jesus. there's a whole page on this thing, and it's it just it actually does sound pretty cool. It, you know, it's, I, I like the idea that that more was done to Cap than just him being you know the the perfect physical specimen. That there actually was augmentation beyond you know just making him muscular and, and all that sort of thing that they'd gone the extra mile to actually armor him internally. I think that's kind of an interesting idea. And I wonder, I, I seriously wonder by the way, some of the description reads on this book and, and everything and on this character, if that had some sort of influence on Conway with this character, you know, they're both patriotic characters they they've both gone through a sort of similar process and now they both wind up with a with a similar thing with the with the whole thing about the metal bones and all that. But that's definitely what it, it conjured to my mind as I was reading this, okay. especially with the patriotic angle. Yeah, I've never read that book, so this is all news to me. I'm learning as we go <laughs> along. This is great. No, no, seriously, that's awesome. But no, I'd like I've to al- read that book because it sounds really interesting. I, I like I- that take on Cap. I think that sounds cool. I've always been kind of interested in reading those Marvel novels mm-hmm. uh, that they released around that time. Some of them I hear are completely awful, but uh, but what is you know that's actually an interesting comparison because as I said, he kind of feels like a Marvel hero. Like he could work in the DC world, but this feels more like something Stan Lee would have come up with, right. except he's not fighting the commies. So, and Stanley was all about fighting the commies. Right. Anyways. But no, really solid origin issue. Unfortunately, I don't think the series gets much better. I'm glad to hear you say because I was really nervous as I was reading this. Because I know that you were really looking forward to covering this series. And I know that you had talked it up to me quite a bit. But I got to be yeah. honest with you, Mike. As I was reading it today, buddy, uh, you know, I, I just kept reading it, going, "Wow, you know, this is—is is it gonna? Is there something that happens? Is it gonna get good? Does it go out with a bang, or I, what?" I, I think the again something I'm—I was mixing things up in my head as I was remembering things because I was remembering these issues, and I was reading these issues along with all of the other DC books I have from this time period, and I was really hot on this time period in general. Right. So I was more apt to like it. Plus, I remember I was remembering all the awesome stuff that was done with him in All-Star Squadron. So right. I think when you mash all that together, I had like this rose-tinted view of this series that as I've read it over the past couple of days kind of went wow this this is this is pretty awful in places i didn't i mean i didn't think it was awful because there were things that i liked about it but i think it was one of those things where it's a great idea that just here's really the thought that that i had was that i think it's a damn shame that the book ended at five instead of at least getting to six because six, uh, you know, I've just read the whole thing in canceled comics cavalcade. Six is a damn good issue. Yeah, it really is. is. Cause it gets to the heart of the character. You know, he, he goes into battle, captain America style. He's dropped behind enemy lines. He winds up in a concentration camp 
and it's got some power to it. You know, he 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 sees the plight of the Jews and everything, and he goes fucking apeshit at one point. He really goes berserk, and we we get you know we get a glimpse of the origin of Baron Blitzkrieg and all that. And I really liked that issue. And as I was reading it, I just kept thinking the same thing. I was like, wow, you know, it's such a shame that I think the story, you know, I think the series started strong with issue one and then it just had, you know, four issues of meh. Well, actually, I think it had three issues of meh. I think five was terrible. I really didn't like the fifth. Five is the terrible Halloween episode of a superhero series for the uh, for this book. That that's that that was my description. I mean, in the second issue, he's fighting the Mineral Master, and I <laughs> and again, I understand what Conway was going for here: Marvel type villain, Marvel type hero. We are introduced to Congressman Jack Cull Hammer and his daughter Kathy, and if you'll notice, Hank Hedwood, Hank Haywood, Gloria Giles, yeah. Kathy Cullhammer. I, I did notice that, uh, and, and Jerry Conway did tell Shag and I that he would have preferred. Hank to end up with Gloria because it would be great if GG could end up with HH. Um, <laughs> but, um, and we're introduced to Kathy's beau newspaper magnate, Edward uh, Runyon. And it's kind of a pretty by the numbers type of issue. You know, he, he's showing off for the military, doesn't go quite as planned. Uh, the, the mineral master is this professor that the Baron from the previous issue ends up creating and in, turning into this monster that can, that can, uh, basically he's like Dr. Alchemy. Right. But with a lousier costume and he ends up fighting steel. The interesting thing about their fight is that the mineral master wants nothing to do with war. And he looks at Hank Haywood, uh, or as at steel as like the ultimate personification of America getting into the conflict. Right. And that's kind of the emotional reason for their fighting, but everything else is pretty much meh. My problem with this issue is I thought, like you just said, I thought the whole issue was kind of, meh, it's okay. And then Steele's speech at the bottom of page 16 was just starting to really turn my opinion of the issue, issue around because I liked what he was saying. You know, he, he went very Captain America there for a minute. Yeah. And was doing the whole, you know, America, democracy, mom, apple pie thing, which, you know, I don't care if it's corny. I like that shit. You know, I so really do, I. do. It really speaks to me. So I was just starting to get into the issue when he did that. And then he resolves the story by having Steel hold the bad guy over his head for 12 hours in the middle of the street <laughs> to yes. defeat him. And I was like. All right, dude. You know, I I think I'm a very forgiving comic book fan. I can forgive some absolutely wacky ass shit, but you know, even I've got my tolerances, and that was just stupid. You know, I mean, really, the cops and the pedestrians and the motorists and they're they're just gonna let this fucking guy stand in the middle of the street for twelve hours. You know, nobody's gonna come up and go, um, dude, what what are you doing? <laughs> What are you doing with yourself? What are you, what are you doing with your life? Get out of the street, asshole! <laughs> Never mind the, the, the miles and miles of traffic that's backed up because yeah. he's just standing there. But as much as I didn't like that issue, uh, the second issue, I, I liked the third issue 
better. Uh, we switched to a two-story format, which is really one big story, but it's split up into a ten-pager and a seven-pager uh, with a with another artist on the second story, uh, which I'll get into in a second because oh my god, um, we we have him fighting the Sledgehammer, who is a mob boss from Chicago that is after Runyon because in very cliched fashioned. Runyon and Sledgehammer were boyhood friends, and Sledgehammer was just like this big ox type of guy that everyone was like, ah, what's up with him? He's kind of stupid. So he beats the piss out of a bunch of people, and everyone leaves him alone, which makes sense. But Runyon becomes friends with him until one day Sledge... What is his... Oh God, what is his name? I didn't write it down because it made my head hurt. Uh, about what his real name was. Oh, I didn't even pay any attention. Uh, let's see. Da, da, da. Email Sledgeski. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so, but Email eventually kills a kid and is eventually caught by the police based on an anonymous tip, and you can kind of see coming a mile away. Yes. Was the one that turned him in. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. Because, you know, I, that was my, my number one note for this issue. Saw that shit coming a mile away. And, you know, that's not me trying to be braggerish. It's just I think that it was – I hate to say it because, you know, it, this is like the second or third thing we've reviewed by Jerry Conway that I haven't liked. And I, I, I don't want it to make me sound like a hater because I like Jerry Conway. I mm-hmm. really do. But yeah, this was a weak ass issue because I did I you know, and I'm not even good at mystery stories, you know. Yeah, I, I'm I'm usually the guy that you get to the end and it's like, oh, okay, all right, I get it now. But no, this one here. See, see I'm the exact same way because I'm not one of those readers that sits there looking for clues. Right. I just get into the story and let it take me where the story's exactly. going to take me. Yep. And I find I enjoy mysteries more that way. But it also makes me feel almost clever when I can kind of figure it out and still enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. And and that's kind of what happened here. You know, it's just like you figure out, okay, Runyon's the one that turned him in. And, and the problem with this issue is not the villain. Because I kind of liked Sledgehammer because he's the big ox-type villain. No, dude. You know who no, he seriously. is, don't you? Who? All right, take take the take the gimmick of that character off of his hands and put it yeah. on the top of his head. And who is he? Oh, it's Hammerhead. Hammerhead. <laughs> Didn't Jerry Conway create Hammerhead? I think so. Yeah. Okay, there you go. But I I I liked the characterization because, such as it is, because I did kind of feel bad for him in a, in a weird way because you know. Yeah, he killed somebody, but it was because he went to jail that turned him into a a crime lord. But here's my problem with this this first part of the the issue is the speech that Steele delivers at the end, basically saying you were right to turn him in, but ultimately it's your fault that he's a crime lord. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And it's like what? What? <laughs> but. Then we get into the second story with the Gadgeteer, 
And we have Juan Ortiz doing the art with Bruce Patterson inking it. And, oh, my God, what a 70s-looking steal on that first and second page with his shirt open and his hairy chest. All we need to do is is have uh, some gold chains uh, drawn in there, uh, you know, because he looks like he's about to go. He looks like Evil Knievel's disco outfit. Yep. So, oh, we were on the same page there. He, Very he, good. he needs a helmet with wings on, a motorcycle helmet with wings painted on the side, and he needs a see-through shield, and he's good to go. <laughs> Very good. So we see um, Runyon and Kathy go out to dinner, and, you know, they seem to be somewhat of a typical rich bitch couple. Right. And the gadgeteer shows up. He's goofy looking as hell. He robs the place, and, she, and Kathy is doing nothing but giving Runyon shit for not doing anything and thinking that maybe, you know, like she'd really like to fuck Steel. Um, at least that's what I get from that page seven, yeah. that middle panel. Like, I really want to have sex with this guy. Which does a total 180 in the next issue. But at the end of this, we find out that Dr. Giles has had a heart attack after reading a story about Steel the Indestructible Man, and Hank blames himself because. He uh, he knows that Giles was completely against everything that he's done, and he feels like he gave Giles the heart attack. And while it's a dramatic way to, to end the issue, what the hell was with this whole story? Why couldn't we have just introduced the Gadgeteer next issue? <laughs> right. At the very beginning of the issue. Right. I mean, really, the, the, it, this is the 70s version of padding out a story. I liked the second one better, even though it really doesn't go anywhere, just because I liked the art a whole lot better. But yeah, you're right. The, the, it really is just, it's padding out. It really is. <laughs> Watch me dance, boy. Feet don't fail me now. <laughs> Did you have anything else on this issue? Oh, let's look at my notes here. Um, yes, actually. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, did. I, got, I had Very two good. things. Um, what the hell is Steele's beef with Runyon? Runyon turned in a killer. I, I think that that got glossed over in his yeah. in his whole speech. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Runyon may or may not be a scumbag. I think he's kind of portrayed as a scumbag in this, really only because he's a a liberal newspaper man. And I don't think that that's quite fair, The the way that both Steele and the story portrays Runyon. Cause he, does he strike you as a scumbag? Because he didn't really strike me as a scumbag. He just... He, he was he was treated a little scummy in the previous issue. Uh, I, I think it's more to what happens in the next issue where we, we find out how spineless he really is. But right. I, I don't know if it was so much, you know, he's a, he's a liberal newspaper uh, magnate, but it, it's just... He is portrayed as kind of the bad guy as well because, for some reason, he's responsible for what happened to Sledgehammer. Right. And every time I see that say that name, I hear dun 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 because <laughs> I loved that TV series. Oh, I, I'm I'm hearing the the Peter Gabriel Sledgehammer. Oh, okay. Um, but I mean, what? Ultimately, what would Steele rather this guy have done? Had not turned him in? Because, you know, he makes this big deal about, you know, 
you know, ultimately you must realize you made this guy when you turned him in. And I'm thinking, as opposed to having done what? Not turned him in? Let him just get away with killing somebody? <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't caught, offer an alternative. Or get caught in the natural process of, of the police investigation? I, I guess. I just, yeah. It I just didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. It, it, seemed, it, seemed, it seemed like he was going out of the way to make this guy a bad guy. Right. And, and came up with one of the weaker ways to do that. Yeah, well, it, it seemed like he was going for, for putting these two characters at odds with each other, but the justification of why exactly Steele doesn't like this guy or has an has a animosity with him was, was a weak justification, I thought. And then at, I love when I realized this. You get to the end of that issue... And, you know, it's, it's Hank, you know, doing everything he can, even, doesn't he even get into an accident? Yeah, he gets into an accident, getting to the hospital and everything, to be by Dr. Guile's side, you know, with his daughter and all yeah. that. And we get to the last page, and it's, my God, can Giles have guessed the truth? And he did, was the shock so great that it's killing him. Lord, if if Giles dies, then I'm responsible. Steel may have uh, killed the man who saved my life. Um, holy Aunt May ending, dude. <laughs> yeah, this was a very Peter Parker moment. Yeah. Oh my God, Aunt May! If she finds out I'm Spider Man, she's gonna get you know diarrhea, and it's like, oh Jesus Christ, dude. Well, Aunt May was drawn to be like the fucking crypt keeper through most of the Ditko era, anyways. <laughs> I know. She's she's the only character I know that's actually like de-aging in comics. It's like you expect to like her arm to come up and it snap off like the like the freaking Nazi in uh <laughs> uh what is that? Last Crusade Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh my god. But yeah, that's all I got on this one. Um outside of your favorite ad being on the back. Oh, I love that ad. I absolutely love that one. God damn it, Bobby. <laughs> you want to do it again? Let's do it again. I love it. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I'll, 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 you, do you want to be Bobby or do you want to be everybody else? I'll be everybody else. Okay. okay. This is Super Siren by Empire with real police sound. Okay. So we see Mr. We see uh, what is his name, Mr. Jones. He's backing his car out of his driveway, and stupid ass Bobby's riding his bike right behind him. <laughs> Mr. Jones says, "God damn it, Bobby, watch out!" Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Jones. So Bobby gets home, and his mother's standing out there in her apron, her hands on her hips. She's fucking pissed. Bobby, Mr. Jones told me what happened. You're punished. No more riding your bike. Bobby, feeling badly, is now out walking, and wow, this is just what I need as he looks into a toy store and sees the Super Siren. <laughs> so Bobby runs home with the Super Siren and puts it on his bike, and he goes, Hey, Mom, look what I got for my bike. Now, what his mother should say is, Bobby, how did you pay for that? But instead, she says, Okay, Bobby, now you can go ride your bike. <laughs> so he gets behind, and he lets off the siren. <laughs> but what he doesn't know... Mr. Jones is completely deaf, and he backs over Bobby anyway. Poor Bobby. End of the end of that. Now that's the way it should end. That's the way it should end. You know, in it says world. 
it, it says as seen on TV. That makes me think that there might be a live action version of this ad oh, out there. I've got to try to find that. I have got to try. <laughs> oh my god, that would be so cool. Because you know what this ad would be like today. Well, it wouldn't be Billy Mays because he's dead. But it would be that other annoying British guy. <laughs> no, well, let's do Billy Mays anyways. Hi, Billy Mays here <laughs> with Super Siren. You ever drive down the street on your bike and the neighbor just couldn't hear you? Watch out, Bobby. Well, we've got the Super Siren. <laughs> I do you remember the Super Siren because I don't remember. Well, of course you you were, what you yeah. were, you were born seventy eight six seventy six. So centennial baby. But I don't remember the Super Siren. What I remember is the thing where you slipped the the grip off of one of your your uh, handlebars, and you slipped on this thing that had a, a you know you could actually turn the grip. And it made a motorcycle sound. So you turn it and you go like, rum, 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 rum. I, I don't know what the hell that thing was called. Somebody in listener land is going to know what, I, what I'm talking about and write Probably in Probably Stan Johnston. Yeah. I remember those. Those were huge. Every boy had one of those things. But I don't remember Super Siren for nothing. So maybe it was a, maybe it was a failed. Maybe it was the ROM, the ROM Space Knight of the 1970s. I don't know. This is a... This is a special episode because it was the first time I did my Billy Mays impression. Um, <laughs> Mr. Jones here. Do you have <laughs> problems keeping Billy out from behind your car? <laughs> Do you have problems keeping Billy in the basement before you're done? <laughs> and you ruined his childhood? So we get into the fourth issue before I get into that any further. Fifth. <laughs> it's the fifth, isn't it? No, no, or are we on the fourth? Oh, no, all right. On the fourth. Maybe I just wanted to be on the, the fifth. Ghastly, the ghastly grip of the gadgeteer. <laughs> um, there's really not much to say about this. Steel fights the gadgeteer because he's manipulated by Kathy and Runyon. And this this is my... <laughs> uh, during against the backdrop of Giles maybe dying and Gloria still being pissed that he joined the military because she's a real big bitch, but when we're introduced to Kathy and Runyon, she is Edward Runyon. You're a disappointment. A costume crazy man robs us at the plaza, and all you want to do is leave it for the police. Are you the man my father is grooming for the governor's mansion? Where's your imagination, Edward? And I'm just like, I just wanted him to, and I and I do not condone this sort of behavior, but I just wanted him to turn around, say nothing, and then... <laughs> <laughs> you know, this... As he pours himself another drink. <laughs> this issue has so many elements to it that normally would make up a really awesome comic. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't come together, you know? It, it's got the drama of his friends on his deathbed and everything. It's got, you know, the, the his ongoing bullshit with his girlfriend. It's got Adolf in it. Uncle Adolf is in this one. It's got, uh, you know, how many superheroes do you know that actually aim a sniper rifle at the bad guy's head? He does Using that. mercy North bullets. Yeah, now that part I didn't like. That's something that 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 Conway created for the Punisher, uh, in the when he would make his Amazing Spider-Man seventies appearances. I, I think my biggest beef with this issue is that Steel comes in and you know Kathy bats her pretty little blue eyes at him, and I'm assuming they're blue. And basically, you know, Steel lays it on the line. Look, I'll go after this guy if you start supporting 
a more pro-America getting involved in the war in Europe stance. Right. And Kathy steps up and is like, you know, you need to do that. He's absolutely right. You know, go go take care of it, and we'll and uh, you know, Edward will Edward will do what you want him to do. He leaves, and she's immediately like, ah, you don't have to do that. We lied to him. You know, you're gonna have to get used to this. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what the <laughs> hell? If you're going to be a politician, you'll have to get used to lying now and then. Yeah. That... <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> but, you know, we, we have the typical, he fights the villain, the villain gets away, the cops mistake him for the villain, steal in the next story, uh, Manhunt, penciled by Juan Ortiz. Oh, I love the uh, art in this part. Eventually, the first couple of pages were a little wonky to me. And, you know, eventually he, you know, like you said, he, he takes out, he's got the sniper rifle on the gadgeteer and ends up doing nothing but, you know, using it as a, uh, what would you call that? I can I can never remember what that's called. Uh, when you it's not the, quite a grapple, but yeah, it's a, uh, uh, like a zip line type yeah, of Yeah, zip line, that's exactly it. And he defeats the bad guy, but in the process gets blown up real good because he hides the he has to protect everybody else uh, from a grenade exploding and and here here is my biggest problem with this issue going into issue five because you expect issue five to begin with him still lying there almost Mm -hmm. dead Mm -hmm. doesn't fucking happen he literally in in the course of just a little space of time either hitches a ride or runs from New York City to upstate New York. <laughs> Virtually my old neck of the woods, my old stomping ground. So yeah, I had real, real, real problems with uh, with issue number five, big time. So do you want to get into that, or do you have anything else on four? I, I, lit- really I do have- not have one note on number four, believe it or <laughs> okay. not. So we, we get into issue five, what turned out to be the final issue. This was the big 25-page and like the all-star comics issue, it lies because it says 44 all-new pages. Uh, and the story is only like 25 of those pages. So, <laughs> so there you go. We got mostly ads and stuff. Ah, kids can't count. Fuck it. You know, they'll, they'll never catch it. Okay, let's see if I can break this down because I didn't write a synopsis for this. Um, Steel gets better mi- miraculously and we're told this in flashback, by the way, runs upstate, runs across a old college acquaintance of his who is who, who was experimenting with the bio-retardant <laughs> material. Had to pause <laughs> to let you have your laugh. And is attacked by a guy who looks like he's covered in fur. There's really no other way to describe him. He's like this furry, monstrous creature. He tracks him to this house. He gets into the house. A butler leads him to a lab. This guy comes in claiming to be one person and tells the story of the Hawk um, uh, family and how one was a, was a silent movie star, the other was his manager, but apparently the guy was great for silent movies. But he talked like this, so he was all worn out. It's like he had triple adenoids or something. Sir! Sir! I deep-fried and battered my nuts, sir! Or my personal favorite, 
We need more special sauce. Put that mayonnaise in the sun. Um, and, of course, as is no surprise, uh, the, the brothers were involved in some horrible accident. And one of the, one of the brothers experimented on the other. And surprise, surprise, that's the big monster. Steel fights him. And the two brothers end up dying at the end as Olivia and Steel run from the house. And Jesus Christ, this was the dumbest fucking comic I have ever read. Yep. This one sucked. It really didn't have any... Like, out loud. Yeah. It it had zero, (laughs) zero redeeming qualities about it. Other than it had two really cool ads, which I'll get to in a minute. But, uh, all right. This sort of thing drives me nuts. From now on, if writers are going to place a story... In upstate New York, God damn it! I want I want an address. I want to know where this is because everything in these old comics seems to happen in upstate New York. Now I've seen like military bases, secret laboratories, you know, secret genetic installations and shit. I mean, upstate New York is only so fucking big, right? You know. <laughs> But, you know, it says, the story starts out and it says a foggy back road in upstate New York near the Canadian border. And I was like, holy shit, that's my old stomping ground. So I, I kind of like that element, except for the fact, um, now I'm no geologist or whatever the fuck, but uh, I'm pretty sure that there's no quicksand in upstate New York. I'm pretty sure that there's no quicksand in, in, in New York, like all of New York. Now, if anybody else out there in listener land knows differently, please fill me in on that. But I am going to demand some sort of empirical evidence that there is actually quicksand in upstate New York. That was a big part of this story was when steel gets caught in the quicksand. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. Also, the last page with uh, with the castle coming tumbling down. What happened to the yeah. butler? He left. I hope so. I mean, he left as soon as as, as like he showed he showed Steel the lab, and then his his ass was out the door. He had already packed his bags. He had the car waiting, and he's just like, "Okay, I finally got somebody to take my place. I'm free, free." And he drives off and then falls into the quicksand and dies. <laughs> it's very sad when you think about it, because he escapes the house blowing up only to die in quicksand. And what was with this swimming. house? You I know, don't. it's it's like this. This was supposed to be the monster issue, and it. It wasn't a very good one. Oh my god! I mean, he he still goes into this house, and you know, it, at first I thought, wow, this house looked cool because the art was actually pretty cool. You know, it looked like your your old fashioned. You know, at one time at the turn of the century, this had been some beautiful mansion, and now it was this creepy old, you know, rundown haunted mansion looking place. That was enough for me, but then they had to get stupid. And they threw in these, like, giant guillotines that fall down when you walk in the room. And then, you know, it had the the stereotypical, you know, the trap door that opens. And then there was a cork that fell down from the ceiling in case you didn't fall into the pit that was going to, like, squish your fingers. And then there was the shark tank. And then he busts out of the shark tank, and there's, like, this secret genetics lab underneath the man. I'm like, oh, what the fuck, you know? It was, I mean, this would have been a stretch in a James Bond movie, you know? It was was really (laughs) stupid. I'm sorry, you know? I I can't candy coat it. It was really dumb. It was such a bad story. This is kind of the dumbed-down version of the $6 million man fighting the bionic Bigfoot. Yep. Yep. 
That's and 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 again, I, I'm not trying to insult Jerry Conway or his writing. I'd actually be kind of interested in what he thinks of this issue now. But you know, you, I'm sure I'm sure when he wrote it, he had the best of intentions. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can see the the glimmer in there of of some of greatness, you know, because I like I said, I think the character really had a lot of potential. It's just you take two through five, and it's really no mystery whatsoever why this series failed and, and why it didn't make it past that fifth issue. But what really makes it that much sadder beyond the potential of the character is that, you know, if, if you can get your hands on that sixth issue, damn, I think that one's great. I really liked that one, and it's such a shame that you know, it, it it wound up where it wound up and was never actually published. Because even the version that, that does wind up in uh, All-Star Squadron, I liked it. I, I think the art is beautiful. I love seeing it inked by Ordway and all that. But even that story was altered slightly. And I, I felt like some of the... Uh, I felt like a little bit of the bite was pulled out of it, but just by some of the alterations that were made to the story. But I'll, I'll save that for when we actually cover that in uh, in All Star, yeah. you know, on Tales. Yeah, this is the big to be continued moment, I guess. Yeah. Well, before that, uh, we do that, though, uh, did you have anything on anything else about the issue or the ads or anything? Because there was a couple of really good ads. There's a lot of really good ads in this one. It it. it uh, you know, the ads were pretty awesome throughout the entire thing. I mean, you have the Daily Planet page that shows the Adam Strange Superman crossover in DC Comics Presents. And, you know, they were really pushing the rest of the line throughout this. But which ones were you uh, were you excited about outside of the Shazam one? The, the two in particular was uh, this one page, A Galaxy of DC Super Goodies. And we had two on this page that I had as a kid that I just absolutely loved. You've got the comic action Batmobile, and it was uh, it was a molded plastic Batmobile that had a, a little Batman figure in the driver's seat. I love that thing. I went. I think we talked about this. Oh, have we? Okay. Yeah, I think we talked about this on. Um, we talked about something like that on Tales at one point. Okay. I I do remember talking about. It. Not that we can't talk about it again here. Because it's been so long, and some people may not listen to tales. So there you go. We also had the Batman utility belt. I loved the Batman utility belt. <laughs> Although it shows these like Wonder Woman looking bracelets, I don't remember that. If if it came with those, I don't think I ever would have worn them. <laughs> I remember the Bat grapple. I remember the Bat gun, and I was like, Batman doesn't carry a gun, but it did. It came with a gun for some weird reason. But the other ad. You have these as paper issues, don't you? Yes, I do. You lucky bastard. Uh, well, I was going to mention something about that at the end of the episode. So, uh, oh, okay. Go with your bad self. The Hostess ad. Now, we don't have any more for, uh, for Tales, so do we want to act this bad boy out? Because this is a, a really good one. <laughs> well, we're running a little longer than we wanted to, but yeah, we can do this. Uh, do you want to be... Uh... Batman, as usual. I like being Batman. <laughs> Alrighty, so uh, we have a hostess ad with Batman has a practical foe, Captain Stingery <laughs> in Batman and the Corsair of Crime. So we have Batman and Robin in a helicopter, I'm assuming. 
Robin says, the Corsair of Crime is holding Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara as hostages. Right, Robin. He's demanding that Gotham City turn over the Super Cruiser Line Empress for their return. It's up to us to change his plans. Swear to me! <laughs> but it is Batman's plans that go awry as we find the Cape Crusader surrounded by the Corsair of Crime and his crew. Ho, ho, ho! Batman, me hearty! You'll have to walk the plank! <laughs> and Robin says it's going to take special measures to get Batman out of this. Hey, look! Hostess fruit pies! Apple! Cherry! Peach! Keep your eyes on the Batman, fool! I'd rather get my hands on the tender, light, flaky crust! Delicious, real fruit filling! Great thinking, Robin. <laughs> and then the next panel we see... I was waiting for it! <laughs> Swear to me! Thank you. <laughs> so the next panel... I actually like this shot of the Batcopter in the next panel. It's pretty cool. <laughs> We see Robin's hauling uh, Batman and, and Corsair aboard the Batcopter. Corsair's all tied up and everything, and Batman says, Tell your crew to release the hostages, or take a bath, Corsair. Swear to me! And then ever, and there, Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara are in the uh, Batcopter with Corsair sitting between them, looking really uncomfortable. Because what we don't see is that Commissioner Gordon is totally feeling him up. Yeah, he's got his hand on his lap. I noticed that, too. <laughs> And uh, Commissioner Gordon says, Corsair, you'll get yours about ten years. And we'll get ours. Delicious hostess fruit pies. <laughs> you'll get a big delight in every bite of hostess fruit pies. <laughs> That's my terrible Irish accent. No, that was, very, that was very good, actually. I like that. Uh, uh, well, before we go to be continued in... Tales of the Justice Society of America. I, I do want to mention that when I bought these initially, I bought the first four, four issues thinking I had the entire series. I don't know why. I, didn't, I, I think it was one of those things where somebody had stuck like an issue between four and five, so I thought that was it. Because Titans was kind of notorious for that at times. Um, unless Chuck Sheffy. Hi, Chuck. Uh, was was keeping up with the with the backstock. So the first four issues I bought for a dollar a piece in like 1997-98. When I went back to read them and realized that I was missing an issue, I went back to buy the fifth issue of Steel, and the price had raised three dollars. So I had to pay four dollars for the for the fifth issue. I had to pay the most money for the weakest issue. Damn it. <laughs> you got bone. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com. Or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, 
which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Damian Wayne is going to be on the Teen Titans. What? Apparently the Robin that has been running around, Bruce's son, is going to be on the Teen Titans. Oh, I thought you meant Damian Wayne's from that, what was that, the All Living Color or whatever the hell? That's what I Damon thought. Wayans? No, yeah, there you not go. Damon Wayans. That's what I Damon, thought you were talking about. Damian Wayne. Okay. <laughs>